0: is Jesus in the last paragraph of Matthew's gospel the passage of scripture that I just read Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20 in these final sentences Matthew sums up his gorgeous complex account of the life of Jesus of of the things that he did and who he understood himself to be, and who Matthew believed him to be. If you have a Bible, find this portion of Scripture. Again, it's Matthew 28. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a table of contents in the front. It lists all the different parts, the different books of the Bible. Very confusing. They're not in alphabetical order. Just scan through the list until you find Matthew. It'll give you a page number. Find that page number. That'll take you to the beginning of that part of that book. And then scoot to the right until you find the final page of his gospel. It's chapter 28. Who is Jesus? Well, here at the end of his account of Jesus... Matthew sums things up. He sums up the life of Jesus by giving us several different aspects of Jesus' identity. I'm going to point out two. First of all, Matthew shows us that Jesus is God. Matthew believed this about Jesus... And Jesus believed this about himself. We see this come out in five particular details. This this view that Jesus believed himself to be God, that Matthew and the other early followers of Jesus believed him to be God. We see this come out in five particular details. Look look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now hold your finger there and flip back a few pages and find Matthew chapter 4. This is near the beginning of Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 4, look down at verse 8. This is the famous account of Satan tempting Jesus. Again, Matthew chapter 4 verse 8. Again, the devil took him, took Jesus... To a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan offers Jesus glory and power if Jesus would worship Satan. Now notice Jesus' response. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, going back to Matthew 28, we see that when Satan tried to entice Jesus to worshiping Satan, to worshiping him, Jesus responded like a good Jew. He responded from the Jewish scriptures that that's illicit. You should only worship God. You should only serve God. So at the end of... That's how Matthew's gospel begins its account of Jesus. Then when you get to the end of it, and Jesus' followers worship him, if he did not believe he was God, what would he have done? Stop that. No, no, no. That's not... He already faced an enormous temptation on this issue, and he staked his whole identity on it as illegitimate to worship anybody but God, and then he receives the worship of his followers. Now that's one way in which Matthew is claiming that Jesus is God and that Jesus himself believed himself to be God. Number two, look at Matthew 18 verse 18, the next verse. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, before the sermon, we had a change up in the scripture readings, and grace read to us from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, one of the handful of most well-known passages of scripture during the time of Jesus. This would have been in the top 10, okay? And in this, listen to it again, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, there's... Daniel is having this vision. God is giving him a vision of the way God is at work in the world. I saw in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. That's the image we have on the front of our worship God, God imaged as the ancient of days, the father. And this one that came to him was presented before him. Now, this, this this figure is very mysterious to the Jews. They're not sure who it is that is presented to the Father. And to him, to this one presented to the Father, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, again, at the end of Matthew's gospel... When Jesus said that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, he is referencing that promise that is on the hearts and minds and imaginations of the people he's talking to. And he's saying that long promise is fulfilled in me, in Jesus absolute authority has been handed over to me. That's what Jesus says. And again, in a Jewish culture, this is a claim to divinity. In another part of the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, God says, Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I give my glory to no other And yet here we see God and Daniel promising to give his glory to this shadowy figure. And then Jesus steps forward and says, I am that figure. And the only way all of this adds up in a Jewish culture is that it is a claim to divinity. Now, three, look at verse 19, the very next verse of Matthew 28. Jesus looks at his disciples after making these claims and he says, Now, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son... That's Daniel's language, one like the Son of Man. And of the Son, he's just identified himself as the recipient of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He's just identified himself as that shadowy Son in Daniel 7. And now he says, baptize people in the name of the Father and of me and of the Holy Spirit that has been a part of this all the way from Genesis 1. Again, a claim to divinity. He's just lifted himself up on level... With the Father and the Spirit. This is an explicit claim in a Jewish context, which Jesus was, which his audience was, which Matthew was in his context. This is an explicit claim to divinity. Fourth. Now for the fourth way in which Jesus is claiming divinity here at the end of Matthew's gospel, you need to know the Old Testament. And you need to know that a central moment in the history of the Jewish people was when God summoned the Jewish people out of Egypt to meet God where? Anybody know this part of the story? On a mountain. God summoned the Jewish people to meet him on a mountain. And then what did God give Israel from that mountain? His commands. The Ten Commandments and then the rest of the commands. Now look at the first half of verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus commands his followers to move out into the nations and teach them, teach the nations, to observe all that Jesus commanded. Now go back to verse 16. Where is Jesus standing when he says, do everything I tell you? Verse 16 says, on a mountain. He is picking up the whole story of Israel, all that they've learned about God, and he is inserting himself in the position of God. Here is he now, gathered with symbolically 12 disciples, representing symbolically the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's saying, it's happening again. I'm doing what I've done before. I'm gathering you around me on a mountain and giving you commands. Now, for the final way in which Jesus is claiming to be God, look at the last half of verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20. Here Jesus makes the astonishing promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises his continual presence with his people throughout time and space. Now this promise of omnipresence is limited to deity alone. Now, I know that you could reduce this claim to a psychological presence. You'll always have me with you. Like some movies treat the relationship between loved ones when one of them dies and says, I'll always be with you and kind of talking about in memory. Or maybe if you're watching, uh, what's the blue people on the other planet, Avatar, maybe in some kind of Zen way. But don't bootleg 20th century romanticism into this context because this is a Jewish story and that doesn't work there. This is a claim to identity. This is a claim that Jesus is making. All five of these things a very strong claim that he's God. Now, who do you say Jesus is? He is the eternal Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. He took on flesh and blood and he lived among us. That's who he believed himself to be. That's who the eyewitnesses that saw him understood him to be claiming he was. And not only did they understand him claiming that, they believed it themselves. Now there is a view in our day that these documents, Matthew's gospel for example, are fabrications of the early church. And that we can take the moral teachings of Jesus and value them. But these radical claims to divinity, that these were added onto the documents by the early followers of Jesus in order to create a myth to perpetuate their power in the world. The only problem with that is at the time claiming that led to your death. This was not a power move. This was a death certificate. Look, some of you got degrees in religion at secular universities where you were taught a myth. You were taught the myth that the New Testament was a product of the church. Can I say to you, that's wrong. It is wrong. And the evidence bears it out. And if, if this is one of those things that you're just not sure about, come and talk to me. Let, let's talk about this. Let's look at the evidence. Let's, let's see that there is accurate, reliable, historical, logical evidence for the fact that Jesus believed he was God, that his eyewitnesses believed he was God, now that doesn't mean you have to believe it. I'm just saying the evidence is there that he actually claimed that. And that those who saw him believed that. And you can't write Christianity away as a developed myth. Now, so I began this message by asking, who is Jesus? And I said that Matthew concludes his gospel by emphasizing crucial aspects of Jesus's own self-identity. The first is that Jesus is divine. He's God. Now a second crucial element regarding Jesus's identity is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's long plan to heal the world. First of all, we see this in the way that Jesus picks up Daniel chapter 7. And he says, all those promises made in Daniel a long time ago that the Jewish people around 2,000 years ago are studying and memorizing and longing to be fulfilled, that's me. I'm the fulfillment of the long promise of all the prophecies, of all the stories, that's me. I've already pointed some of that out in Daniel chapter 7. But there's something else that I want to show you. See, there's actually two Old Testament passages that form the key backdrop of the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 16 to 20. The first is Daniel chapter 7, but the second, it's a little more salacious. It's a little more interesting. To see this one, we need to flip back to the first book of the Bible. If you have your Bible or one that you've borrowed or nicked from a hotel... Genesis chapter, turn to the book of Genesis. Find the 37th chapter. Now, my Bible, this is page 37. Now, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is 50 chapters long. And from Genesis 37 to the end, okay, 13 chapters, the story centers around 12 particular brothers, quite a large family. And in Genesis 37, we meet the next to youngest brother. Anybody know his name? Joseph. And old Joseph is a fool. And he ticks off his brothers. They get so angry with him. He does it so often, so much, that they decide they're going to carry on their heritage. Like the first set of brothers they're going to commit an act of brother murder. And they're going to kill Joseph. But Judah, the third to oldest of the brothers, in a rather feeble and greedy attempt to spare young Joseph, he comes up with the idea that instead of killing him, let's sell him into slavery. Which they do, and it's a win-win. Because they get rid of him, and they pocket a rather large sum of money. Right. Now, that's Genesis 37. The next chapter, Genesis 38, we see that, lo and behold, Judah was not righteous in saving young Joseph's life through a trick on his brothers. No, he is greedy, he is wicked, because in Genesis chapter 38, we see Judah for who he really is. His son dies, and Judah's response is very bad. First of all, he refuses to take care of his son's widow, who now will be doomed to either prostitution or death because she was given into a family, husband died, she did not produce male children. There is no way for her to make a living. There is no way for her to have an identity. And Judah says, I don't give a flip. Go. Dooms her to death. It's very, very bad in that culture, in that context. Then secondly, one day, he's walking down the road, he sees a prostitute, he decides to involve himself in the world's second oldest profession. And lo and behold, it's his daughter-in-law in disguise. He commits adultery with his daughter-in-law that he's already cast out. Now, this is so Awful. I mean, you can hardly even wrap your mind around somebody doing this. And just in case you don't really believe it's bad, the very next chapter, Genesis 39, is the account of Joseph the fool resisting sexual temptation when it's an in, in, in enormous possibility in his life. And it's put there, Joseph resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife, just to show up that Joseph the fool has more self-control than this one who you might have thought... Was helping Joseph out. And so we see when we compare these two chapters. In their juxtaposition. That Judah is wicked. So here's Judah. You're reading along in the story. This fairly seasoned sinner. And then things begin to change. And by the end of Genesis. Judah has been transformed. In chapter 43. The brothers... Or in a life and death situation. They're facing famine. And this time, instead of tricking his way into greed, Judah saves the life of his family by offering his own life in sacrifice. This is a very different move than Judah. Judah didn't offer himself in sacrifice to save Joseph. But now in 43, he lays his own life down, offers himself as a, as, a, as, a, as a sacrifice to save the life of his brothers. He's had a tremendous change as the years have gone by. And then in chapter 44, just in case you don't believe it, he does it again. And he offers himself to save the life of his brothers again. So by the time we get to chapter 49 of Genesis, the passage that Jacob read to us, verses 8 to 12. By the time we get here, Judah has surpassed Joseph. And it is Judah's righteousness and Judah's greatness that dominates the family. In fact, remember what it said, what what Jacob read to us in Genesis chapter 49. In verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from you, Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between your feet until tribute comes to you. And to you shall be the obedience of the people. Suddenly, Judah is elevated to the highest position in the family. He has received the promises given to Joseph. Now... Why does Judah slide to the forefront? Because he willingly and voluntarily laid his life down for his brothers. In fact, that phrase is used several times in this story, for his brothers. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 28. The chapter begins, Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. It begins with Jesus' resurrection. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb where Jesus' body was placed. But he's risen from the dead. And an angel tells the women, look at Matthew 28 verse 7, pay close attention to the language. Go quickly and tell his, tell Jesus's disciples that he has risen from the dead. Then look at verse 8. The women departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. But notice verse 9. Jesus shows up and he meets the two Marys as they're running down the road. He met them and he said, greetings. (laughs) And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my disciples. Is that what your Bible says? No, it's not my disciples. Suddenly there's a change in the language. Go and tell who? My brothers. To go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The shift from disciples to my brothers. Then we get to verse 16. And we're given account. How many brothers are there in verse 16? It says, it names them. Eleven. Just in case you're not drawing it together. How many brothers did Judah have? That bowed down before him. 11. Your brothers, it said in Genesis 49, shall praise you. Here is Jesus being praised by his brothers. Your your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has said to his disciples, I am the son of God and you too will be sons of God. And here we find Jesus now, who in Matthew chapter 1 was described as... Judah, here at the end of Matthew's gospel, is described as the fulfillment of the promise to Judah. You see what Matthew is doing is he's pulling together all these threads from the long history of Israel to say that Jesus is not only God, Jesus is the kingly ruler that God has been promising to Israel and that he, like Judah before him, accomplishes this greatness how? How did Jesus rise to this greatness? By laying his life down. The one and only God fulfilled his once and for all promise to the people of Israel to rescue this entire universe, the entire creation, the whole world from its brokenness. He promised that he would bring forgiveness For our sins. And that he would bring it not only to the people of Israel. But to all the nations. And that he would bring renewal to every square inch of nature and culture. And Jesus is the climax of this long story. This long road to the healing of the world. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is God's promised deliverer. And He has all authority over all things in heaven and earth. And He accomplishes this, lo and behold, by by answering these mysterious passages of Scripture throughout the Old Testament that involved sacrifice for brothers, and this shadowy figure that is God but is different from God that is related to God and yet somehow is God Jesus is that Do you believe this Do you believe that Jesus is God That he is the the promise that the one creator God made from the beginning Have you been baptized into his name? Literally, have you been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Do you worship? These are not really, I want to think. Do you worship Jesus Christ as God and God's solution to the problems of the world? Are you learning to obey all of his commands? Do you look on his death and resurrection with gratitude? Do you rest all of the weight of your life on Jesus? Believing that his death and resurrection is the only thing that secures your forgiveness and your future glory. Do you? If you don't, why not? What's the reason you don't? Is it because this is new to you? is it because you've just never really thought about it before? It's never really dawned on you before? Or maybe you've been taught that these you've been taught different things about Jesus. And what I'm saying now just doesn't really measure up with the kind of stuff that you've always thought about him. Maybe you've thought like like I talked about earlier that Jesus had a great ethic But you've never really taken his claims to divinity seriously. Now there are many different reasons people don't believe that Jesus is God. And that he is the solution, the only solution to all the evil and death in our lives personally and in this world. And and it is so important for you to deal with this because hear me closely. The most important question about Christianity is not does it work. The most important question about Christianity is not, is it useful? The most important question is whether it's true or not. Not its ethic, but the claims of God in Christ. That's the most important thing. And there's this sleight of hand move that's done in our culture that says, enlightened people glean the teachings of Jesus apart from the claims of Jesus to divinity. Thats what you believe, because that's what you were taught, or somehow you just got that teaching some way. Can I say? That is an important enough distinction for you to figure it out. Don't just rest on what academia gave you. Academics believe in myths. Academia is not inerrant. We know this. We, are no, we know that as the academic world strives for truth, it discovers aspects of truth it was confused about and revises. We know this is a fact of science. Don't, don't trade in faith in the Bible for faith in academia as if you're in a safer place. They're both acts of faith. This is important stuff. Look back at Matthew chapter 28 verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them. Notice, doubt is not demonized here. Doubt is not castigated here. Notice Jesus doesn't, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. Notice Jesus doesn't pull back. He literally steps toward them. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He accepts them. Some of you who do worship Jesus and doubt him at the same time, There are people in this room, you worship, but you hesitate. In fact, some of your Bibles translate that word, but some hesitated. It's an ambiguous word. It's kind of a double entendre. Did they doubt that he was God or did they doubt because they were such strong Jewish people that you shouldn't worship anybody but God? How can he be God and God be Father? We're not sure what's going on. It can also be translated hesitate, like as if this is a heavy move to make. But any way you slice it, I know there are people in this room that this is you. That you worship and you hesitate. Be encouraged. Jesus does not step away from worshiping but doubting disciples. He doesn't say, I'll come back when you're certain. He steps towards you. He comes up to you. He's patient. Just worship him as best you can. He can handle the doubts. And the church is not ashamed of them. This is Look, if you're creating a myth, this is not the way to create a myth. You don't take the founders of the religion and show them up to be filled with doubt. Much less read the rest of the book. They're nincompoots. They're totally getting it wrong all the time. Here to the very last sentence. This is not the way to write a myth. So some of you who worship in doubt, I just want to say to you, it's okay. You're all right. And I also want to say to you, don't let your doubts paralyze you. Don't wait to worship on absolute certainty. I, look, I, I'm not saying that Christianity is a blind leap of faith. No, that whole notion of the blind leap of faith, that's Hollywood. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith. It's not faith the way Christianity has ever talked about it. That's not what it means to have faith in your spouse. You don't wait for absolute certainty to get married. Those of you who got married. If you're waiting on absolute certainty, you're never going to get on an airplane. You're never going to get in a car. You're not going to trust your teacher in first grade when your teacher tells you one plus zero equals one. I'm saying that faith doesn't require absolute certainty. At the same time, I preached two sermons on how faith is not a blind leap over the couple of weeks ago. What I'm saying to you... I'm not minimizing doubt. I encourage you to take your doubts seriously. To dig into them. To face them. To ask, why don't I believe? What I'm saying this morning... Is that you can worship and doubt at the same time. What I'm saying is that doubts... Do not have to be tragic. And Hanson, listen to me... And others who are juniors and seniors and starting college... File this away, because when you enter into college, you're going to encounter some very intelligent people. You're going to discover a much bigger world than the Church of the Incarnation. And you're going to feel tremendous doubt. It is not the enemy of faith. It is the enemy of certainty, not the enemy of faith. Doubts do not have to be tragic. Plenty of Jesus' followers from the first to this room Worship and doubt simultaneously. It's possible to trust Jesus and to question Jesus all at the same time. What I'm saying is that a little bit of faith is enough. There's this moment in Luke's gospel when Jesus' disciples ask him to increase their faith. Oh, we've only got a little bit of faith. And it's so interesting that when Jesus has this wide open door to help them increase their faith, he doesn't give them a way to increase their faith. He doesn't give them proofs. You know what he does? Instead, he says this If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's enough. Isn't that encouraging? isn't that encouraging? <laughs> I mean, so many of us in this room, Jenny, so many of us in this room, that Ernie, this is so encouraging, isn't it? That when people come to Jesus and say, I barely believe, help me to grow in belief. Jesus says, a little faith is enough. Size of a mustard seed. You know how small that is? Little, little bitty. Jesus is telling us that we can expect great things from ordinary faith. God does not require uncommon faith. To serve him. Now, one last thing. If you want to know the truth about Jesus, who he really is, check him out. Investigate. Don't rely on what others have told you. Explore. I'm telling you the evidence is there. I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. I haven't given you any of the evidence. I'm telling you it's there, which is kind of a challenge. It's an invitation. Go check it out. Call me. Talk to me. Let's chat. Let's sift through the evidence together if you want to. That's one step. But there's something else that I've got to add. There's another important issue here. John chapter 8, verse 31, when Jesus was responding to those who doubted him, in John 8, 31, listen to what he said. One time I already pointed out when Jesus said, people told Jesus we doubt, he said, Oh, a little faith is enough. But another time he responds in a different way. Listen to how he responds. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Then What's the then referencing? When you obey me. Hold to my teaching in John's gospel means obey me. Very much like the end of Matthew's gospels. How do you make disciples? By teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded. If you doubt, I encourage you to question and investigate and seek, but Jesus was clear. You cannot discover the truth about God through detached, neutral observation. We learn who God is by doing God's will. When Jesus speaks of holding to his teaching in John, he means living in accord with his command. So if you want to know the truth about Jesus, definitely pursue the evidence, investigate. But that will never get you all the way there. Because we're dealing with relational knowledge. And laying my wife on a lab table and dissecting her does not in any way let me know her. William Wordsworth, we murder to dissect. You want to know the truth about Jesus? Be an intentional hypocrite. Obey his commands. Read the gospel of Matthew, which at the end of it he says, do everything I told you to do. Then read back through and you'll see there's five big blocks of his commands. Imitate his way of life. Imitate his attitude, his way of treating people, his way of relating to God the Father, his prayer life, his self-denying, sacrificial love. Just start faking that stuff. Do it even though you don't believe it or want to do it. Accept his commands. Worship him. Doubts and all. Find what he says to do and do it. Because obedience to the teachings of Jesus is the way the Bible says you can discover if Jesus is for real or not. Suspend disbelief. Enter it into an experiment. Give it a good college try. Keep coming to church. Just keep faking it. Take him up on his invitation. Obedience to the teachings of Jesus is the way, is the way to know the truth. Follow him, and you will discover that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray.